Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In Podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hello, Louise. Hello. Hello, everyone. This is our last conversation for the year. It is. It is. Before we all break for the holidays. Yeah, it's one we've been very much looking forward to. Today, we're going to be discussing Edith Wharton's The House of Mirth, which we're doing as a read-along. And we've had lots of messages from you all letting us know that you're reading it or that you've finished it. If you haven't yet read it, we do need to warn you that there will be spoilers. It's our only non-spoiler. Yeah, yeah. Usually we we try to keep our conversation spoiler-free, but today is an exception because we're really doing a deep dive into the House of Mirth, and to do that you need to be able to talk freely about the plot. (laughs) So Lou and I are back in the studio. We've got our huge cups of tea, which is appropriate, isn't it, given how many cups of tea Lily Bart consumes. Yes, yes. And it's pretty hot here in Perth now. We've got biscuits shaped like Christmas trees Mm. and strawberries, and I'm really looking forward to discussing this with you. So before we start talking about the actual book, Lou, I thought it might be good to talk first a little bit about Edith Wharton herself. Great idea. Great idea. She was a fascinating Mm. woman. So she was born in 1862, So that's during the Civil War. And she died in France in 1937 at the age of 75. So she lived to a good age. And she wrote about the period called the Gilded Age, which spanned from about the 1870s to about 1900. And that was a period in America of very rapid economic growth, especially in the northern United States and the western United States. And there was this massive, massive influx of immigrants from Europe, like in the millions during that period. So there was both the accumulation of vast wealth and also terrible poverty and that terrible divide. So Edith was born Edith Jones and her parents were very wealthy. I think they'd made their money in real estate. And apparently the saying, keeping up with the Joneses, is said to refer to them. Is that right? Mm. Wow. It's uh, her father's family, apparently. She was fluent in French, German and Italian. And she had a difficult relationship with her mother. She was very critical of her. And she railed against the social mores of girls being purely decorative so that they could marry well. And she was hungry for an education, but she wasn't allowed to have one. And her mother forbade her reading novels until she was married. Wow. So she read everything in her father's library, but they were mostly like the Greek classics and non-fiction books. And then once she was married, she just started reading novels. So did novels. she teach herself language? She must have taught herself languages. I think she had a governess. Oh, okay. So that an education, not as we understand. No, no, a lady's education. Yeah, that's right. And piano, all those sort of things. And she married Teddy Wharton at the age of 23 after being a debutante and they had a house in Park Avenue. I mean, isn't the fact that he's called Teddy just perfect? I know. 
who's <laughs> 12 years older than her, I think, and mm. a wealthy Boston boy, good sportsman, probably idle, wealthy guy, you know, just the epitome of everything that her books represent. And so they had this house in Park Avenue and they and they had another house in Rhode Island, I think, and they travelled extensively to Europe. And she had a passionate love of Italy and gardens, which you mentioned when you found that book. Yes, she was invited to go to Italy to create a, a chronicle of all these wow. great gardens of Italy in the north, I believe. Wow. So I think she was called a style maker and she wrote lots of books about house design mm. and decorating and things. And in the late 1800s, Teddy began to suffer from acute depression and they stopped travelling. And I think she was affected quite badly by his depression and his illness became quite serious, I think. She had poems and short stories published, initially under a pseudonym or anonymously. She didn't write her first novel until she was 40, which surprised me. Mind you, 40 years of observing. Yeah, Everything from the windows of her Upper East Side. Yeah, from the brownstone. Oh, my God. And she wrote a total of 15 novels in all. That's quite prolific. Yeah. And a memoir called A Backward Glance, which was not a very revealing memoir. She was the first person to win the Pulitzer Prize for Literature in 1921 for The Age of Innocence. That's an interesting story. Mm. The judges chose somebody else. And the panel of professors, I think, from Columbia University overturned their decision and gave it to her. Wow. Mm, Can you imagine? Uh, She also wrote the novella Ethan Frome, which I think... I haven't read that one, and it sounds fabulous. So that might be the next one I read. And she wrote The House of Mirth in uh, 1905, and across her life she wrote about 85 short stories, and she wrote several design books. So she's... A very interesting person. And I suppose in some ways she, although she rejected some of the conventions of society, she married into them and then she was able, because she was wealthy, to take advantage of things, wasn't she? So she was in a very luxurious position to become the sort of feminist anti-convention woman that, that she was really and to do things that probably women of her station weren't doing, like writing novels and... Yeah. Well, I thought I might start talking about the beginning of the book... Yes, ..and yes. the character of Lily Bart, who is the protagonist. As you mentioned, the book is set in the era that Wharton wrote it, so that's 1905, so late 19th century, early 20th century. And it opens in the most New York of New oh, York yeah. locations, Grand Central Station, which I just love because it's such an, a sort of a grand, iconic symbol of New York... But it's also a very fitting symbol of change and progress. And the railways were such a big thing in the Gilded Age. Yeah, so that's sort of the period of the book. So I I think that was a very very deliberate choice, yeah. Mm. And a young man whom we later learn is the young lawyer Lawrence Selden. He's returning to work in New York and he spies an acquaintance at the railway, a beautiful young woman on the platform, a Miss Lily Bart. And she tells him that she's on her way to the country house Bellamont of her friends. Judy and Gus Trenor, but she's missed the 3.15, so she has a few hours to spare while she waits for the next train. So the two of them decide to go and get some tea. And the book spans the next two years in the life of Lily, who's aged 29, and significantly, it turns out, she's not yet married. And it's from the start of the book, it's clear that Lily's beauty 
assumes a great significance. It's the thing that most people notice about her. It's the thing most people mention when talking about her. Uh, And at least initially, it's something of which Lily is acutely aware herself of its impact on others uh, and the feelings that it sort of stirs in men in her life and probably also the envy it invokes in women. And ultimately, of the power that she perceives that beauty gives her. And her mother had told her that that would be her ticket. Yes, exactly. But like the motive of the Gilded Age, all that sparkles is not what it seems. Mm. And we become aware very early on uh, when Lily goes to the Trenors country estate in the company of some very well-off other guests that Lily's circumstances are not as she would desire. And, of course, at country house parties like this one that she's attending, she is maintaining a facade, a gilded facade. Yeah. She stays up late with the other guests playing bridge and gambling, which she can ill afford to do. Mm. And we learn that she's losing a lot of money. And she didn't particularly have a lot to lose in the first place. Yeah. On the other hand, it's important that she accepts these invitations because she has a sort of social sponsorship from her acquaintances, doesn't she? Yeah. You know, she's often a companion for some of the married women and she receives clothes yep. and trinkets from them. But they still treat her a bit like an unpaid servant. Oh, like, they do. Come they up do. and help me write my yes, letters come and, and do my do RSVPs. Yeah. Yes. yeah, she's a sort of a secretarial kind of yeah. <laughs> role. But it's also important that she attends because it's obviously it's an opportunity for her to be introduced to potential suitors. Yes. Which, after all, that is her chief preoccupation, is to find herself a husband. Yes. So the sort of social risks of her mounting debts is still outweighed by the prospect of securing a husband. Yeah, a wealthy husband. Yes, but that's a very precarious situation. And you, you learn of that pretty much in the first few chapters of the novel. Yeah. Lily's parents have both died and Lily lives with her aunt, who's a rather severe woman, Mrs. Peniston. She's horrible. She's awful. She's quite detached and she's pretty oblivious, I think, to the social world Lily is inhabiting. Or rather, she thinks she knows what Lily's getting up to and she has no idea. Yes. And, you know, relative to the life that Lily's leading, you know, she gives Lily a pretty meagre allowance, doesn't she? She pays some expenses and her dressmaking expenses and a few things like that. Wharton describes Lily's recollection of her mother as vigorous and determined, but she describes Lily's recollection of her father as sort of neutral and balding and stooped, even though he was actually very similar age to her mother. So she has this sort of vague sense of there never being enough money and that her father is to blame for it and that her mother is to be applauded for managing the money so well. (laughs) But Lily and her mother don't do without. They still have holidays and dresses and they always seem to live as though they're much richer than they were. And so that's the behaviour that's been modelled for Lily. Yeah, and lots of maids too. Don't yes, Let's not forget exactly. that as well. Yeah, My so, I mean, th- her mother maintained a household as if she were, were rich. Yeah. And that, of course, is exactly what Lily's doing now. She is maintaining an appearance that she is wealthier than she is. Yes. And then, of course, one day Lily's father comes home to tell them that he's ruined. Oh, God. And that, from that point on, despite um, him becoming very ill, he ceases to exist for Lily's mother. So, again... That's the lesson that Lily is early, learning yes. from an early age. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a man is only, uh, only of benefit or desirable if he has money. Yeah. 
and that's ingrained in Lily. But before Lily's mother dies, she reminds Lily that her beauty is a gift and she implores her, as you said earlier, to use her beauty as a weapon to gain a good match. And she tells her daughter, it's a lovely passage I just want to read. Not lovely, awful passage. After two years of hungry roaming, Mrs Bart had died, died of a deep disgust. She had hated dinginess and it was a fate to be dingy. Her visions of a brilliant marriage for Lily had faded after the first year. People can't marry you if they don't see you. And how can they see you in these holes where we're stuck? That was the burden of her lament, and her last adjuration to her daughter was to escape from dinginess if she could. Don't let it creep up on you and drag you down. Fight your way out of it somehow. You're young and you can do it, she insisted. So dinginess. Avoid dinginess at all costs. Gosh. So I think we can say, Ginny, can't we, that it's her mother who's sort of responsible for shaping those attitudes and that approach that Lily has yeah. to her future, really. Yeah. So by the time Lily gets to the Trenor's house party, she's actually convinced that she's going to marry a fellow house party guest. He's very dull, but he's very rich. This is Percy Grice. Yes, the bookish one. Yes, he collects yes. first he collects editions. He or something, <laughs> doesn't he? Yes. He lives with his mother in, in New York City and um, he's very dull. And she meets him on the train going to the Trenor's house party and she's sort of visualising the wealth and comfort that he will bring her if she is able to land that match. And she's and quite overconfident, isn't don't she? Don't forget, he was also mentioned when Lily first ran into Seldom. Seldom. Yes. So Percy has been on her horizon. Yes, they talk about the books that he collects, so that means that when she meets Grice, yes. she's kind of full bottle on the books That's and she right. can talk intelligently about That's them, right. can't she? She can draw which him out. impresses him. Mm. So we're aware very early on, aren't we, that this is a really calculated strategy Absolutely. that she's employing. You know, she's acutely aware of her power and, you know, what she needs to do to secure... And the reality is everyone is aware. Yes. He's aware, she's aware... Yes. And she's done it before. We learn eventually that she's done this before. So her friend Lawrence Selden, who she had met at Grand Central Station, also surprisingly arrives at Bellacourt. And instead of going to church and keeping her promise to walk in the afternoon with Percy Grice, she feigns a headache. And she chooses instead to walk with Selden, with whom she has a sort of much easier and more open relationship. And this, of course, is one of the great ironies of the book that it's precisely because Lily thinks that Selden is unsuitable to marry because he's not rich enough and he he doesn't value wealth himself well certainly not the sort that Lily is after that they're freer to develop a closer friendship and easy dialogue and they have this sort of this banter they share their opinions their different philosophies they disagree they challenge each other and there's a chemistry i think isn't there there is a huge chemistry they're very attracted to each other and he challenges her desires to marry well and lily admits to selden the only person to whom she admits it that it may not bring her happiness yeah and we find out during that chat with selden that lily's already seen off a couple of suitors she changes her mind at the last minute So that's a bit of an insight into her character as well. She often thinks she can do better. And, of course, in comparing Percy Grice with Selden, she knows Selden is the better man. He's a better personal match for her, but he has no status and he has no money. 
But of course, ignoring of grass ends up being another miscalculation, doesn't it? Yeah. She had this sort of interesting self-defeating behaviour where she has this pattern of... Because there were other men that she was attracted to. I think mm. one of them was a minor prince, I think. Well, yeah, well, she, I think she was engaged to the prince, wasn't yeah. she? We and then she sort of flirted yes. with the prince's cousin or something yes. and put an end yeah. to that. She just constantly... Missteps. Puts her foot in it. Her head is turned, I think, by other opportunities. Yeah. And maybe that's because she's not entirely convinced of her own strategy. So she's hell-bent on procuring a rich husband, but maybe there's something there... She doesn't really want to spend her life with these boring men. it's a needs-must, isn't it, really? Yeah. Hence that sort of conflict she has with her relationship with Selden, really. She knows he is a better man. Yeah. And her beauty, I think, probably stands in the way as well Mm. because she probably has... Uh, attracts people very easily. Mm. And attracts the wrong people. Yeah. So her ignoring of Grice ends up being a miscalculation because he's really miffed that yes. that she's chosen. He, I think he it was all understood that he was going to propose. Yes. Well, on he, that was, walk. he was due to have a walk with her and, and it was going to be was a sealed be a, deal. The, and, yes, the and deal. silly Lily. She just said, I didn't yeah. turn up. You see, the night before she'd sat at a dinner part, at the dinner table, hadn't she? And she'd seen Selden compared to Grice. Yes. And there was no match, no really. Match. And so she decides to walk with Selden. And so Grice leaves, although we find out later that he may have left for other reasons as well. But anyway. Yeah. But while she is still at Bellamont, the hostess, Judy Trenor, asks Lily if she will go to the station and pick up her husband, Gus. Yeah. And it's fair to say that Lily attracts a lot of attention from odious men like oh. Gus Trenor. And she knows that she can use some of her feminine wiles. She's heard people talking about the stock market and that there is money to be made. And she knows that he's attracted to her. So she uses her feminine wiles to manipulate him and ask him to help her invest some of her money on the stock market so she can trade herself out of her financial woes. And that sets the train. That sets the scene for what ultimately happens. Yes. I think you're going to talk about some of the larger-than-life characters. Yes. Oh, there's so much in this book. It's just so rich with wonderful characters. One of the characters that I particularly loved, Lou, was, or I found the most interesting perhaps, is Simon Rosedale. Mm. He's a hard character to read because of the anti-Semitism. Well, he represents the immigrant, doesn't he? He's the immigrant. He's the immigrant. Of the Gilded Age. He's new money. Yeah. Every time Edith Wharton mentions him, she makes a a rather nasty comment about him as a Jew. Um, So I've got a couple of little bits that I'll read because I, I think they say it better than I could. Under the Georgian porch, she paused again, scanning the street for a handsome as in a handsome cab. None was in sight, but as she reached the sidewalk, she ran against a small, glossy-looking man with a gardenia in his coat who raised his hat with a surprised exclamation. Miss Bart, and he goes on. And then later she says, Mr Rosedale stood scanning her with interest and approval. He was a plump, rosy man of the blonde Jewish type with smart London clothes fitting him like upholstery. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and small sidelong eyes, which gave him the air of appraising people as if they were bric-a-brac. 
Oh, I have <laughs> such mixed feelings about... Well, we've talked about this before with writers of this era, haven't we, really, the sort of anti-Semitism that yep. pervades. It's horrible. She says, he had his race's accuracy in the appraisal of values mm. and to be seen walking down the platform at the crowded afternoon hour in the company of Miss Lily Bart would have been money in his pocket as he might himself have phrased mm. it. So it's interesting, isn't it, because in society there is not only there is the sort of jealousies, you know, of the upper class, but then there's also this terrible prejudice against people. You know, I I think it's where the phrase robber baron came from as well. Uh Uh-huh. You know, the making of the vast sums of money and and the prejudice against. Yeah, that's interesting. So he is a Jewish businessman. He's going up in the world in terms of his wealth, but he cannot make an entree into society because... The various society dames and their husbands don't want to let him in. Or if they do, it's only because they think that he's in the ascendancy and it might not be a good thing to cross him because later on they might need him. So they're sort of hedging their bets a bit. So he's sort of in but only on the outer and they say horrible things behind his back. And they're waiting for someone else to let him in. Before they decide, yes. don't they? Yes, and I think Ned or someone let him in, mm. I think, to pay off some debts and invited him to things, And but Ned was castigated by everybody. Mm. What, what have you done letting this guy come to our parties? <laughs> it's just horrible. But he's really the only person, you know, in society, in as much as he is in society, who really shows any genuine concern for Lily down the track when mm. things start falling apart for her and he can see that she's sort of falling through the cracks. So he's, to me, he's, he's really the only one who has an ounce of humanity. But even then, he's not really willing to stick his neck out. No, he's still a little bit on the take for himself, isn't he, on Absolutely. every occasion? Yeah. He has an instinct where he can see that she is in need and things are going horribly wrong, but he's only prepared to go so far. Mm. <laughs> and he makes her an offer, but he attaches terrible conditions to to his offer. And his offer of help is to marry her, but she's got to do certain things mm. first. And so he's the closest that anyone comes to, to having any sort of humanity. And even then, you know, he's not portrayed in a particularly great light. He sort of represents that mercantile class, mm. He's actually probably works a bit harder for his yeah, money. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, he, I think, is a reminder about the ups and downs of the stock market, mm. which had happened during that Gilded Age. There were a couple of crashes. crashes. Mm. I think one of the crashes involved the Bering Bank, which I think is funny that's you know still around, and people speculating in Argentina and all sorts of things f- falling over. Uh, so... Th- the money markets had a very direct impact on where people stood in society and, and like Lily's father coming home and saying he he was ruined, I'm sure that's probably in one of those small stock market crashes. Yes. You're reminded how near a miss it is for a lot of them. They're, they're not very far away from financial ruin, some of them. I mean, some of these people in society have got a lot of money behind them and they're probably fine. But even Gus Trenor talks quite openly to Lily about how hard he has to work to maintain everything. Yes. You can tell that he finds it quite a struggle to keep the money coming in. He's got to work quite hard and he sort of moans and whinges about it. He doesn't find it an easy thing. And there's this real divide between men and women where women are kept very much out of all of this. They don't, they're not told, they don't know. 
the wives really don't know what their husbands are getting up to and they're back in New York making money. And then the, the husbands are just over here battling away, trying to anticipate what's going to go up and what's going to go down and buying and selling. And There is a little bit of a sense of potential corruption Yes. As well. And which yes. of course it's was, all a bit dirty. It is all a bit dirty and because I believe that the phrase the Gilded Age was coined by Mark Twain. Yes. I think he, he yes. wrote a book with someone else. He did, yes. And it was about that sort of veneer of a very thin veneer over it? the shabbiness, and, the grubbiness yeah. of, of, of money. Yeah. Yeah, and society and the extreme poverty. Mm. Like the lady on the stairs who's yes. washing the stairs when Lily goes to visit um, Lawrence Seldon. And she's put there as a direct contrast with Lily, with her beautiful skirts, you know, having to step over this bucket of water that this woman's using to mop the stairs. So, yeah, there's some fantastic characters. Another one that I really loved is Gertie Farish. So Gertie is a friend of Lily's and she's a cousin of Lily's real love, Lawrence Selden. And she is the only likeable female in Lily's circle. I really liked mm. Gertie. She was like a, a gal pal. She's like the modern, truly loyal, lovely friend. So I'll just read out a little bit oh. about Gertie because I thought she was described so beautifully. So when Lily and Lawrence are meeting for the first time, they start chatting about Gertie and uh, he says, I, I know women who live in a flat. That's right. And she says, oh, I know, you mean Gertie Farish. She smiled a little unkindly. But I said marriageable. And besides, she has a horrid little place and no maid and such queer things to eat. Her cook does the washing and the food tastes of soap. I should hate that, you know. And then she says of Gertie, I forgot she was your cousin, but we're so different, you know. She likes being good and I like being happy. And besides, she is free and I am not, which mm. I think says everything. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. And Gertie's the one who, you know, and she says it often as well, but she truly does know Lily. She truly knows Lily. She has Lily. a complete measure of Lily's character and yep. she's really trying to encourage Lily to be herself, isn't she? Yes. So Gertie As is not beautiful. Do. She only has a very modest income. So she lives in this very modest flat on her own and she has no prospect of making a good marriage or probably any but marriage. But she's independent. But she's independent. And she's completely resigned to the fact that she's not going to marry and she has no expectations of herself to marry money or to marry anyone and no one has expectations of her. So she's just pottering around sort of on the edge of society because of who her relations are. Uh, so she understands exactly how it all works but she's sort of a bit like Simon Rosedale on the outer a little bit and she gets invited to lots of things because she's a relative but uh, not because she actually has any status of her own or any potential for helping any of the people who invite her to things. They know that she's never going to be able to give them anything. But or she's non-threatening as well. She's, she's non-threatening. She's not competing with them. Yeah. So that's also an advantage yeah, for some so people. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And she's the only true friend Lily has mm. and the only one who did help her and shared accommodation with her and, and you know, supported her when things went pear-shaped. Mm. And then the other character that I really loved was Nellie Struther, who we meet at the end of the novel when 
So just to set it up, things have gone badly for Lily. She has been treated quite badly by an, a lady named Bertha, who invited Lily onto a yacht so that Lily could distract Bertha's husband while Bertha was <laughs> off having an affair with Ned. And so Lily has sort of naively mm. done that and gone on this yacht to Europe and they're in Monte Carlo and then Bertha has turned on her in front of everybody at a dinner. They're all about to go back to the yacht and Bertha says, oh, Lily isn't coming back to the yacht. She basically just says to everybody, Lily's not coming home. Well, she is so fearful of people concluding that she's in the wrong and that and about the affair that she sort of attacks, doesn't she? She, la- she lashes out and makes someone out else, else the, the baddie. Yeah, and she kind of changes the course of Lily's life in many, in yeah, many ways. Yeah, it's, it's so evil what she mm. does, so evil. People have found out that she came back very early in the morning with the person she's having the affair with. And so really to divert attention yeah. from her over here, she throws her Yeah, and, suggest, and suggests that Lily is having an affair with her husband. Her husband. Um, when in fact they'd simply been looking for her. Yep. Or waiting for her. Yeah, it's so, just dreadful. Yeah, it's, it's dreadful. They really set her up. It was, it was just appalling. Well, and it's late at night. She's got nowhere to go. No. Well, also it kind of does highlight the position Lily's in, that she's kind of useful to people as this sort of singleton companion. Yes. And she's beautiful and she attracts moths to the flame. Yes. But also she's somebody that people can cast aspersions about yeah, because you, you why isn't it. she married? And, yes. And she has all these associations with people. So there were already rumours floating around about, about Lily. Yeah, yeah. So it's very easy for this woman yeah. to kind of... Yes, it's not difficult. And, no. if, and And it's made very clear that people, even people who don't believe Bertha are quite open about the fact that they need to stay in Bertha's good books. Absolutely. If they have to choose whose side to take, it's yeah. very easy to, to choose Bertha, who's vastly wealthy. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's almost like Lily's outplayed at that moment. So Completely uh, Lily, who herself has been quite an adept calculated yes. strategist yes. at times a bit naive yes she is naive she's well, out of her league yeah compared but she's to out of her league with these women because these women have been up to no good for a long time yeah and yeah she's, and they're playing the game better than her yeah because bertha has married a very wealthy man yeah and is living the dream yes <laughs> yeah bertha's living her best life <laughs> in, in fact there's that marvelous scene earlier in the book when they're all playing bridge and lily laments that the women who are already married and already have endless access to money via their marriages are still winning at bridge. And going off back to their bedrooms with, with handfuls of notes. Yeah, money all falling out of yeah, their arms. Whereas she, who has virtually she nothing, need, she needs that is money. losing at bridge. And it's just sort of this symbol, oh gosh, isn't it? Of, so of, yeah, the she's outplayed every time. Isn't she's she? just, she's not going to be a winner in amongst these people. So that sort of sets up the course of, of Lily's life. It all starts to go downhill. But Edith Wharton has introduced us to a wonderful character called Nettie. So Lily's sitting in the, the gardens in New York, near the New York Library. That yes, you Bryant Park. About. Bryant yeah. Park, very despondent, unwell, thin, mentally unwell and physically unwell, exhausted. And Nettie says, oh, is that you, Lily Bart? And... They have a, a rather wonderful interaction. And, and Nettie had been a young girl with serious lung health issues and depression after having a relationship broken off with a man that she thought she was going to marry. 
And Lily, who's really only ever done one philanthropic thing in yes. her life, which was to go along to this working girls' society with Gertie, had helped Nettie and got her into a sanatorium in the mountains and saved her health. And it's this one recipient of her yes. philanthropy that she stumbles into at the lowest point in her life. And Nettie takes her back to her flat and shows her her baby and talks to her about how much Lily had changed the course of her life and basically saved her life. And so as a reader, you're thinking, oh, thank goodness, this is going to change everything. You it's do. going to help Lily see that she can turn things around and just because things are bad now... Nettie thought everything was over when this man broke it off with her and, and now look at her, she's got a husband and a baby. Edith Wharton is taunting us because I thought, please, oh. please, at this, you know, 11th yes. hour, yes. Lily, turn your life around. Yes, and but you're, not, you're at the end of the book. I know. And you, you sort of know yeah. in your heart. <laughs> yeah. And so she has this lovely interaction and Nettie's so complimentary and... And Nettie's been uh, cast as a fallen woman and now she's a happy lady with this beautifully clean kitchen and everything's lovely and she's... even And, and she's, she's happy with little. She's happy, happy with, with very little. little, you know, so she's... And optimistic for the future and optimistic about the future of her baby and yeah. the prospects and wanting her baby to grow up to be like Lily and we're thinking, oh, no, we don't want the baby to grow up to be like Lily. And it's a very deliberate inclusion to have this yes, person as such a stark counterpoint to Lily. She's from the other end of the social scale and pulled everything back. And Lily leaves that meeting and she said she felt happier than she had for ages. And so you, you go up mm. <laughs> and you think, oh, great. Yeah. She can see there's some light at the end of the tunnel. And, of course, we know things don't turn out that way. But... She was a great little inclusion, I thought. I thought she was fantastic. Well, I think that's an opportune time, Virginia, to sort of just mention that sort of sharp decline. Yes, oh, goodness. Because, you know, the two years of this book is really this sort of sharp, tragic descent from, you know, mixing with this privileged society to living in a shabby boarding house. Yes. She's alone, as you foreshadowed. She's sort of got this declining health. And it, she becomes, I think, the symbol of all that is wrong with the Gilded Age, this yeah. sort of ruthless pursuit of wealth at the expense of love and happiness. But I got very frustrated with her. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you just feel that it could have been avoided, yes. you know, and that she seemed to feel she didn't have a choice. She was so wedded to this course that she was charting. But, of course, she did have choices. So she mm. sort of had choices to work. She had choices to sort of forge out a different kind of life. She had choices to remain with Selden. And she tried work. She did yes. She did the millinery. She didn't try very hard. But though. she didn't try very hard. No, she sort of wasn't cut and out. And she was quite defeatist about it and, and thought yes. she wasn't very good at it and yeah. she didn't fit in with all the working girls. And so it was always going to be a bit of a disaster. But, I mean, Wharton does redeem her as a character because she still remains very principled. I mean, there's something quite admirable. So I should mention that sort of earlier in the book... Gus Trenor, who, of course, by this time she owes him something like nine or $10,000, and he presses his personal advances on her. Well, he almost attempts to rape yes, her. Yes, he does. So she's, you know, he obviously it's wants an intimate... Scene. Uh, yes, you're quite scared for her in the house because she's there by herself. He's pretended to be his wife, hasn't he? He's written to her, pretending to be his wife. Asking, lured her to an empty Lured her to mansion. an empty house. And everyone in society knows that the wife's not there. And he is pressing his physical advances on her. And she discovers that he hasn't 
uh, invested any of her money at all, small amount as it was, and that the money she's been receiving from him over this period and of two spending. years and spending, yes, has in fact been his own money. Which he just expected to get favours in yes. return for. So I think when she is faced with this adversity, her principles come to the fore. Absolutely. So she is determined to pay him back. Mm. She's not going to have a relationship with him. She's not going to have a relationship with anybody. She is prepared to pay him back. And so she sort of sticks to her guns. But, of course, that is also her undoing as well. Yes. So her adversity does bring out this stubbornness in her and this sort of determined... And her... Well, it brings out her integrity. Like it does. You can see what she's really made of. And the other incidents where that happens is where when Lily comes into possession of some incriminating letters... Yes. ..from Bertha the horrible woman who set her up. And Lily just had to buy them to get rid of this char lady who'd stolen them from someone's desk. Well, the letters were about were written to Lawrence Selden, I who, know. of course, she loves. Yeah, I know. So she's protecting Lawrence. Again, that's indication of her. Yeah. But I'd completely forgotten about those letters until Simon Rosedale brought them up again mm. because, of course, he knows everything that's going on because he makes it his business to snoop around and... I don't even know how he knows all these things, but he offers her a way out to use those letters and Lily's principles won't allow her to do that. Mm. Even though if she were to go to Bertha with the packet of letters or even without them and just say, I've got mm. them, no one else needs to know about that and Bertha probably would have just reintroduced her into society. Mm. There's just no way Lily can go into blackmail. No. That's her line. Yeah, and I guess it just brings us to the end, doesn't it, because the choice is between love or death. Yeah, it's terribly sad. Mm, it's very, very sad. But I did love the way that for the whole book I was never... The depiction of Lily is very deft in that she's shown to the reader as having both good characteristics and some not-so-flattering mm. ones. But overall she's quite a, a sympathetic character, uh, very much the product of this rather useless upbringing... But I did love the way that right up until the end, you don't really know whether Lily will make use of the letters. No. And so you you keep an open mind about her. <laughs> You're never quite sure how it's going to pan out. And you do think also she is going to make the choice to marry Rosedale. Yes. In fact, at one stage she wants to marry him and he doesn't want to marry her. So you, you're kept guessing all the time yeah. about what her fate is mm. going to be. It's got lots of twists and turns, it has. isn't it, this book? And I think using Selden very early in the book as the device whereby her most innermost thoughts yes. and her, the real Lily yes. can be exposed to us. We always know that she's got these redeeming features yeah. because... We see yes. them through her interactions with Selden. And with Gertie, to some yeah. extent. Yes, and with Gertie. with Gertie. Yeah, so yeah. that sort of sustains us. But it also keeps us optimistic I that know. things are going to go well. Yeah. I think you wanted to talk about Edith Wharton's language, didn't oh, you? Oh, my goodness, I loved the language. I just, the minute I started reading this, I just thought, oh, it just blew me away from mm. page one. Her command of language, the flow of her sentences, the brilliant insights into the characters' motivations and their limitations. It's just wonderful. I just wanted to read this little bit, which was just at the beginning of Chapter 2. Why must a girl pay so dearly for her least escape from routine? Why could one never do a natural thing without having to screen it behind a structure of artifice? 
She had yielded to a passing impulse in going to Lawrence Selden's rooms, and it was so seldom that she could allow herself the luxury of an impulse. This one, at any rate, was going to cost her rather more than she could afford. It's just brilliant. It's brilliant. It's masterful. It really is masterful. Edith Wharton is right in the epicentre of that society. Yes. And she has just captured it. Yeah. The S, it's just yeah. incredible, isn't it, really? Yeah. And a couple of times you just stopped and read the sentences over I and over again. So many. I have completely highlighted my book. It's covered in bits and pieces. There's another little bit that I absolutely love, which is a little line about Lily Bart's mother, who mm-hmm. was just horrible. And Edith Wharton says, she had no tolerance for scenes which were not of her own making. Mm. And it was odious to her that her husband should make a show of himself before the servants. Yeah. <laughs> that was just before he announced that he was ruined. That he was ruined, yes. I mean, just, uh, you know, so beautifully, beautifully done. Uh, the other thing that I just wanted to say about this book is the hypocrisy of these people that she was trying so hard to get, get into their, their society. They are, the, they are really just the most horrible people. Odious. And the way that you can see that one of the ways that she shows that is the issue around the gambling. So Lily, in order to be put in the way of suitable men that might become a husband, has to go to these house yes. parties and mix with them. And they won't let her go and not play bridge. If she goes, she's expected Mm. to play bridge and then she loses money. But then when she loses money, they're all critical of her for gambling. Yes. And and they treat her as this sort of terrible person. And also behind closed doors, they're all sleeping with each other as well. So they're all multiple divorces. Yes. So, (laughs) you know, she, she really does become this vehicle onto which they can heap all of their prejudices and project all of their own failings. I mean, it's tragic. It's, it is completely tragic yeah. and she, you can't see it. Yeah. And, I mean, we're talking about it at times, you and I now, quite lightly. And it's so long ago, I think. Yeah. But it's it's that kind of, when I first started reading it, because I hadn't read it before, to me I thought, oh, this has this Austin-esque kind of yeah. mannerly kind of yeah. societal but it's so much darker than that. So much darker and, and so sharper. much more sharp. And, and it's iro- excoriating. It <laughs> it's the, it, you know, it's ironic like Austin, but in a really, yeah. really yeah. black way. Yeah. And as we know, unlike Austin, there are no happy endings. No happy endings. And that kind of brings me to this other thing I wanted to talk about was how contemporary the House oh. of Mirth is. I mean, this book... It could be transported to present day Absolutely. without no problems at all in a way that I don't believe Austin no. could be. I mean, people have said it can, but I don't think no. Austin can. It's very much rooted it's in of the its time. of its time. But this, I mean, how has she managed I, to I, do that? It I is just extraordinary. I wonder if it's partly because it's New York. Yeah. Which is sort of almost a character, isn't it? You know, Fifth Avenue and... Upper East Side, Madison Avenue. You picture it all so vividly. I wonder if that... And the fact that New York, some parts of New York now would look very similar. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I don't think much has changed there at all. Some of those big mansions are... And the people watching and and I suppose the spotlight on society, New York society, particularly on the Upper East Side, probably is very similar. And Bryant Park and and then the poor people that are cleaning, scrubbing the floors. I mean, she was such an early feminist, Mm. you know, in a way that I'm sure she was recognised for it at the time. 
So I absolutely loved this book and now I want to read all the Edith Wharton novels and I want to read her memoir and I just want to become an expert in Edith Wharton. <laughs> just think, because she was an early feminist in the sense that she cast such a critical view over New York society and the role that the patriarchy had laid out for its women. And this was a women, woman of, you know, Edith had considerable talent. She had wealth, position, homes, gardens, travel. She was accepted. She had a husband. She might have been excused for being seduced by it all and just accepting it or privately having some thoughts about it. But she saw straight through it and then wrote about mm. it and exposed it for what mm. it really is. Although I do think she's done that from a advantageous position of oh. somebody with wealth. Yeah, absolutely. So I think she has the best of both worlds. She absolutely she, she has the best of... She inhabits the world, but she can also she expose all it. all the benefits, yeah. but she can then be critical yes, of it. Yes, which is exactly what the characters are the yeah, same. Absolutely. There is a hypocrisy there, of course. But she's pretty brutal about the venality of all the society families and their sort of naked ambitions and their strategising. Mm. You know, she holds a mirror up to the society she's moving in. I would be absolutely fascinated to know what the reactions were of all the people that she mixed mm. with when they read her books, mm. whether they still tried to curry favour with her because she was so central to everything. Yes, or whether they marginalised her. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I couldn't find anything about that. Especially if her husband had become ill. Yes. Maybe they did become marginalised. They might have been yeah. cut off like yeah. Lily was. Mm. But that all happened after this was written, yes. which may, maybe Max it a bit mm. prophetic, I don't mm. know. I have to say that I, particularly the first half of the book, the sort of machinations of the society she was in and all the gossip and, and the chit-chat and the... He said, she said, I just, yes. to me, it just felt like the very modern television series Gossip Girl. Yes. Which, of course, is based in New York as well. Yeah. There are um, so many similarities. It is. There? I mean, it follows the lives of rich children on the Upper East Side. And, you know, you have these sort of blonde socialite, uh, Serena and Blair. And it just really, there were just parts of it that really resonated for me. Which is why I think it feels so contemporary. Yeah. So I sort of did a bit of digging about this. And one of the reasons why I might have immediately thought of Gossip Girl is because there are a few little conspiratorial blogs oh. going around that the author of the Gossip Girl books must have been an Edith Wharton uh, fan. fan. Yeah. The opening scene in Gossip Girl is the beautiful Serena standing at Grand Central Station. Oh, I didn't know In that. the same way that, that Lily is found there by Selden. And one of the main characters in uh, Gossip Girl is Serena's mother, Lily Bass, oh. who is married to Bart Bass. Oh, gosh. So, again, the Lily yes. Bart yes. kind of... Yes. It just seems too, much of, a, it just oh seems too much of a coincidence. Yeah. And then in the uh, series, the sort of four main teenagers, Blair, Serena, Dan and Nate, they actually prepare and rehearse and perform in Wharton's Age of Innocence. <laughs> so you've got to think that yes, she must yes, have been yes, a big fan of yes. Edith Wharton. I just wanted to mention that because I thought yeah, it was a bit of a it light-hearted... Is. Well, it's funny you should think that because I also thought, how would Lily Bart be perceived in 2020? Yes. I love thinking about what, you know, what would have happened if this book was set now. Yeah. And 
all of these issues, I think, would arise yeah. probably in a slightly different way. I mean, Lily might be um, an Instagrammer. Or yeah, well, she would be. She would be, wouldn't she? Probably. And somebody would be doing a, a gossip an blog. An influencer and there would be a, 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 a blog. A, yeah. And there's that beautiful scene in The House of Mirth where the Wellington Brys, who are nouveau riche, yes. hold a um, an evening where they invite all the society and they do these tableau vivant yes. where... where a dozen sort of beautiful girls are lured and induced to come and recreate paintings yes. from the old masters, yes. Titian and Van Dyke, and no expense is spared in creating these tableaus. tableaus yeah. And the point of the exercise is to make the guests feel good about the fact that they can identify the old masters. Yes. You know, they can all go, oh, it's, oh, it's a Titian, it's a such and such, and, you know, how, they can all show how clever yeah. they are to yeah. immediately work out. But these girls are being used. Yeah, yeah. It's quite... And Lily, I think of her own choosing, is depicted as the woman, Mrs Lloyd, in Joshua, Sir Joshua Reynolds' painting, Mrs Lloyd, and that was a very deliberate choice by Edith Wharton. She, um, there's a very strong family connection where yeah. Mrs Lloyd in the painting, Mrs Lloyd's husband, is actually connected with Lily's sister-in-law. Yeah, okay. Uh, not Lily's, Edith's, uh, Edith's sister-in-law. Edith's sister-in-law. Yes. So there's this very direct thing. And it was a quite a, it's a well-known painting at the time, Very well-known painting at the time. It's a woman carving her husband's name into a, a tree. Yeah. It's sort of romantic. And she's got her hair all piled up in this sort of beautiful fashion and she's wearing a diaphanous gown. Yes. That... Uh, leaves nothing to the imagination. I know, which I find it's sort yeah. of pre- not pretty see through, yes. and it shows off Lily's beautiful figure. Yeah, and it elicits these grubby comments from yes. all the men. So again, the choice of Lily to do that. Yeah. Yeah, so she's sort of using her beauty. Yeah, she is. But and it really didn't get her anywhere. No, so it, again, that naivety that people, of course, would turn that against yeah. her. And, you know, I had this weird moment where I thought this that scene of the tableau vivant reminds me Catherine Middleton modelling the see-through yes. outfit when yes. Prince William was in the audience. And, uh, and it's a completely diaphanous yes, it was. Um, outfit. She it's, was on the catwalk in St Andrews. And it was that outfit. And you could see Kate Middleton's beautiful legs and yeah. she was stunning. And it's that outfit that made William turn to his friend and say, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and he, uh, uh, that's what I've read, yes. that he then yeah. picked up an interest in her. I mean, it's almost an identical scene. Yes, and it's also sort of reminiscent of all of the complaints about social media yes. with people not doing lewd pictures but showing know, a lot of their bodies and yeah. doing bikini shots yeah and and, and being then being trolled for yes for doing yes, it yes, and yes. and so you know there's just so much in this one we could talk yeah, i could talk for hours yeah i'm only really just modern, warming up now i want to yeah, talk <laughs> i know I, there's just so much in it I mean, we, there's so much we haven't even touched I on. Know, that we would be here for days. Yeah, there is. I did love that that element of thinking about, you know, transferring her into modern times. Yes, and, and really quite seamlessly. I just, yeah. I found it very contemporary. Human beings just haven't changed. And the language <laughs> is very sophisticated, so it also works so well today, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, Be- beautiful. Yeah, I, I absolutely loved it, and I really want to read more, mm. Edith. Yes. Wharton. I think she's just my, my she's my new favourite. <laughs> so what else have you been diving into, Lou? A couple of things. Gus and I have recently finished The Queen's Gambit. I still, I didn't get to watch it. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> it's only so many hours in the day and night. It's currently 
on Netflix in Australia. I can highly recommend it if you haven't already got to it. I'm sure many people have. Um, it's based on a novel published in 1983 by an American author, Walter Tevis. And The Queen's Gambit, for those of you that don't know, actually describes an opening move by White on the chessboard. It's an attacking move using a pawn, moving to the centre of the board, trying to get basically trying to get control of the okay. centre of the board. And The Queen's Gambit is it's the story of a young orphan, Beth Harmon, and she learns to play chess with the janitor at the children's home where she's raised after her mother dies in a car accident. And the janitor... Uh, Mr. Schlepel, I think, recognises that she's a prodigious chess talent and he sets her off on what her luck. way. I know, incredible. It's, it, it, I loved the early episodes, actually. You know, it's the 1960s and, you know, he sends her off to a school chess tournament and basically her career just takes off after that. Wow. It sounds a bit vanilla, but it's not. I, and I really am not going to give anything away about it because... I really want people and to I just watch really it from start to, to finish. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. But, you know, like many children who survive trauma, Beth Harmon has considerable personal demons to deal with, as you would expect. Yeah. And she's also very independent and single-minded, again, mm. probably because of her circumstances. She's really one of a kind and you become so invested in her. It's very visually beautiful. The soundtrack is just oh. fantastic. Oh, wow. Really well cast. But because she's playing chess in virtually every episode, it's quite gripping. Oh, wow. Because, you know, you're, you're in the game. Okay. So, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, it's fabulous. A bit similar to the TV series um, Normal People, which came out in April, I think, this year. That's the Sally yes. uh, Rooney novel. Sally Rooney, yeah. Uh, the Irish Teenagers. There's been a lot of criticism levelled at The Queen's Gambit that the actress playing Beth Harmon, like the actress in, yeah. in Normal People, is too beautiful. Uh, and that the book specifically says that she is not. Oh, okay. That's actually not quite true because in the book, you know, she isn't very attractive as a young child and then when she goes to a couple of chess tournaments, she meets somebody who she's been previously acquainted with and he says, oh, you've, you've grown up to be quite pretty. Right. So I think they manage that really well in the yeah, TV series. Okay. You know, she's a plain gawky child, she's an odd teenager, and then she blossoms into this yeah, very well, self-possessed woman. But that also happens when you're successful. Yeah, true. So, you know, there's also that symbol that yes, yes. maybe she isn't as beautiful as she looks, but, but she you think she is because she's so and, mm. successful. And, and it's Hollywood. They want to sell movies. Yeah, yeah, Who yeah, cares? Yeah. Series, I don't care. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then the only other thing I wanted to mention was the Lu Louise Penny crime novels, which I haven't ever read just started. They've sort of been on my radar for a while. A couple of people had mentioned them to me again very recently. So I had one of those spooky twilighty moments oh. where an episode of Hillary Clinton's podcast came up on my feed and it said that she was interviewing Louise Penny. Yeah. So, no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, it's a sign that you have to read it. It is, absolutely. So I listened to the interview with Louise Penny and it was about her writing and her process. It was really interesting. Turns out Hillary Clinton loves crime fiction. So I've enjoyed that interview very much and I've now started reading Louise Penny's first novel. So I'll report in with that maybe after the holidays. But then I kept listening to the podcast and Hillary Clinton also interviews Stacey Abrams. Now, those of you who are listening in the US will know this, but believe me, I don't think many Australians will know this. Obviously, she's a long-term member of the House of Reps in Georgia. Yep. She's the founder of the Fair Fight Action Group. And she turned around the election. She did. <laughs> Single-handedly. Get, getting women out to vote. 
she'd been unsuccessful in the gubernatorial race for the governorship of Georgia. But I think most significantly, she was the first non-elected official to give the Democratic Party response to President Trump's State of the Union address in 2019. Yeah. She was invited to do that. Chuck Schumer invited her. Yep. So that's really interesting. Very impressive. But my question for you, Virginia, <laughs> I did not know that under the nom de plume Selena Montgomery, she is a romance novelist. I know. I mean, I just and blew I me away. And I only know this because I'm a bookstagrammer. So I've seen pictures of all of the covers with the bursting out corsets oh, well, and the, you know, the handsome man. They're gorgeous. It's just extraordinary. I mean, I just and was blown away. Stacey Abrams was uh, very much a favourite of Oprah. Yes. Oprah really tried to get her to win the governorship. Oh, right, okay. Uh, she was her candidate. So that's yeah. when I started to take an interest because I thought, gee, if Oprah thinks she's good, yes. I'd, I'd like to know what, yeah. what this woman is all because about. Because for many years people didn't know that she was Selena Montgomery. I mean, it's something no, that's it's relatively yeah. recent. I don't know when it came yeah. out, but I only discovered it not that long ago. Yeah, I just extraordinary. It would only be a few months since I discovered it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, she says she was raised on a diet of Mills and Boone and Barbara Cartland. This is a woman who went to Yale. I know. Well, she wrote her <laughs> or, first yeah. romance novel in her second year at Yale. And I have a feeling that she was sort of the top of the class at yeah, Yale. She's just extraordinary. Really. Crazy smart woman. Yeah, crazy smart. Very accomplished. Um, I just, I know, I love that story. But um, her aunt and mother obviously loved, even though they, she, her mother was very strict with her and her sister and, you know, she wasn't allowed to go to dances or whatever until she was 16 or whatever, she, you know, she they were reading these sort of yes. bodice busters. Yes. <laughs> but apparently, this is another little bit of trivia. After Joe Biden won the recent election, there is a romance bookstore in Los Angeles called The Ripped Bodice. Oh, oh my goodness, I have to go yeah. there. Oh. Um, it was inundated with orders for all of oh, Selena Montgomery books. Oh, I love it. And HarperCollins rang them and said, can you just hang on? We're printing lots more. Wow. How amazing I is that? It. They're yeah. going to become these sort of collectibles. We should get some. We should get we should, some. I think we should read some for We the should do an episode on yeah. romance fiction. Yeah. It would be such yeah. a laugh. It's funny that you say this because Meredith from Currently Reading, mm. who is our, our friend, yes. our counterpart in America, yes. she's the one that I heard about Louise Penny. Oh, okay. From. Meredith loves the Louise Penny series. Yes. It's Inspector Somebody or mm. other. Uh, Gamish or Gamish, Gamish in Quebec. Yes. And... She says the first four are not the best, so you've got to read mm, the first okay. four. You've got to read them in order. Okay. And you've got to stick with it because after okay. about, I think, by book four, they start to get really good. Yes. So I've got the first one still sitting life. there. Yes. Yeah, still that, life. Yeah, that's what I'm, that's what so I'm currently reading. Be, so that's where I heard about Louise Penny. About Louise Penny. And then, you know, there's all these other connections. And yeah. We've got Stacey. I think we need to do Stacey Abraham. We do. We do. And Meredith's got another book that she recommends, which is a, a bodice ripper called The Duchess Dare, Ooh. which is meant to be fantastic. Well, Stacey Abrams are romance suspense. So it's oh, kind of a mixture of, of romance with a little bit of, you know, oh, suspense. I like yeah, so I, mean, I think anyway. we should, I might, I'll go home and order something. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> perfect. What have you been diving into? Oh my gosh, Lou, I've been diving into something I think you'll love. I hope, I hope you haven't done it already. You may have already discovered mm. this. But I know you have such an interest in screenwriting. Yes. Uh, so I think this is right up your alley. Mm. So I have been binging on the official podcast Companion to the Crown. You, you have discovered it. Oh, damn. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. It is so good, isn't it? It mm. is so good. So it's called, naturally, The Crown, the official podcast, and there's this lovely lady called Edith Bowman. She has the most beautiful Scottish accent. 
really thick mm. Scottish And accent. can I say I've only started like last week. So I'm not, I'm new to it. Oh, good. Okay. Mm. And she goes about interviewing everybody in the cast Mm. and the writers, the art director, the clothing lady, the wig lady. Mm. Uh, And they're the most articulate and impressive bunch of people you could ever come across. They're just amazing. So this podcast is only for seasons three and four, which is a shame. Mm. They obviously didn't think of it Mm. for the first two I'm assuming that Netflix probably thought this would be a good cross. Yes. Um, well, they did it with Handmaid's Tale, didn't they? Oh, that's true. Yeah, I hadn't thought um, of that. Yeah. And, yeah, and I think that was just such an enormous success. Yeah. And they're always trying to think up of new ways yes. to kind of well, it support really the content. It yeah, really works. Fantastic. I mean, each episode of the podcast relates to an episode of the series. So there's one for every series, plus there are some bonus episodes. I mean, I just adore listening to, for example, Helena Bonham Carter in that cut glass accent. But she's so kooky. She goes yes. to three different witches yes. <laughs> and she's reading palms and she yes. did a seance and, and asked Margaret if she minded. But she's also incredibly kind and yeah. sweet. Yeah, yes. <laughs> just a lovely Yeah, she's mix. kooky. Kooky's a great Very word for kooky. her. Very yeah. kooky. Oh, she's divine. Yeah. And I don't know, the whole thing has just enhanced my enjoyment of mm. The Crown and also my understanding. The one person who has really blown me away she's the most impressive person is the head researcher named Annie Salzberger and she's got an American accent and she has this encyclopedic knowledge of the entire period of history that each episode is set in so Edith Bowman will go and talk to her and Annie will just spin off all this Mm. background of what was going on in England, what was going on economically, what was going on in terms of international relations Mm. with different countries. She gives just a little breakdown of everything that was going on and just pours out of it. It's all at her fingertips. I wonder, yeah, and it's interesting because there's obviously the most recent series, there's so much criticism of the fact v fiction v dramatization. Yeah. I wonder how she feels about You'll find out when you listen to it. It's okay. so interesting. Yeah, her, okay. her comments about Charles and Diana okay. are so perceptive. She absolutely nails it. So her job is to be available to answer any questions and to give background to everybody. And she hasn't helped write it. Nope. She's not a writer. She's the head researcher. Mm. And she's got a team. That's how much money was thrown into mm. this. So the the writer that I really love listening to is Peter Morgan, who's the main yep. showrunner, and yes. he's the one who's the partner of Gillian Anderson. Oh, okay. He was married to a Italian oh, or German that. princess yeah. or something for many years, and now he he's a long-standing partner of okay. Gillian Anderson. And he said to her one day, "I'd love you to play Thatcher. Have a think about it." Wow. So he talks about that. And they all talk about that moment when they, so Thatcher's, well, Gillian is in the room getting the hair and the, the wig and the makeup, and mm. she researches hours and hours and hours and hours and gets all the, the physicality of the, the, the mm. walk and what, the way yeah. the handbag is. And then they sort of said, okay, Gillian, if you could just come forward. And the whole room went silent, you know, just, they were just gobsmacked mm. and blown away. And there's so many moments like that. It made me really wish that I had been a successful actor. Because I would love to work on a set like that. So much fun. There are moments when, and they talk about the Aberfwen coal mining mm. disaster and what an impact that had on them. And Annie Salzberger talks a lot about 
Welsh mining and the economy and uh, the whole thing. It's absolutely fascinating. And I'm not being an apologist for any particular view about the monarchy or, or not, whatever people's views are, but it does make you feel that, you know, this sort of silence and this stiff upper lip and this never explain kind of approach well it just backfires for them yeah, doesn't it really and, and really backfired in that yeah because you know if, if they could just and, and and we could look at countless occasions yes, where I mean. had they just given us a glimpse of their actual humanity yeah. then things would have been different yeah. but of course they believed they had to retain the mystique yes and the you know religious mystery of yes. the crown and and it was a huge mistake yeah. in, in each of those yeah. cases and we're now seeing of course through the Charles and Diana era, mm. how the monarchies had to shift yes. and change. And, and what was okay for Victoria yeah. is not okay yeah. in the 2020s. Mm. Yeah, I, I just found it fascinating. So th there's varying uh, various levels of interest amongst the cast in the royal family. Oh, so that's some interesting. Of them, Couldn't care less. Yeah, knew nothing, didn't know. Yes, it's just a job. Yeah, and I loved listening to Tobias. Mm. He's my favourite cast oh, member. He's mine because I think that episode is my mm. favourite with mm. the moon. And yes, and yes, that's the, the, yeah. probably the most made-up one that yes. Peter Morgan talks about. That there's yeah. no evidence that Prince Philip had that crisis of faith. The friendship that he had with that minister, yes, is true. It's true. Yes, and the charities he set up, but that's the most fictional yes. of all of them. And they do often talk but they, about they, what's they did fictional. The, the crew did come to. Yep, and they came, did meet yep, him. And, yep. But it's just such a gift having. Exploring the moon and a crisis of faith. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> At the same time, yes. it's just such a, a beautiful yeah. way to and explore. And also that. the juxtaposition of three young astronauts who you would think would be kind of you know nerdy and yeah. and but they were just young men yeah. who were in and awe they had head of colds and they yeah. didn't get into a yeah and they were in a discussion. palace and they yeah. you know and they yeah. said yeah yeah. It, yeah so it's so well done so mm. it's completely enhanced my enjoyment even after the fact like I now think that I loved episodes more than I did because having listened to it I think I had just have a much richer, richer understanding yes and I'm going to go back and watch the whole thing again wow and I'm okay. going to listen to every episode after I've watched the episodes. Of well, as you know, form. every member of my family is a West Wing nut, and we have listened to the West oh, Wing yes, podcast. Yes, and on, for the on same a, reason, exact same reason. And we have all gone back and watched episodes of the West Wing over and over again. Everyone has their own West Wing favorite episode, and again, hugely enhanced by the West yes, Wing yes. podcast. It comes back to that issue that I talked about with Helen about bloopers and going behind the scenes and you might think and you could argue that that sort of spoils the mystery mm. a little bit you know knowing what went on behind the scenes but in actual fact it's quite the opposite it only enhances yes. your yes. understanding and enjoyment well and also particularly for a something that's sort of based in a period of history and be something that is such a sumptuous series of longevity. Yes. You know, you, you kind of want all that ins and outs. You yeah. want the behind the scenes, don't you, yes. really? Yes, and it's quite complex. And yes. It all started with him writing those episodes of The Audience, mm. which I've seen the play, mm. um, seen the movie, The Queen, and so that's that sort of the thing on which every episode hangs is that relationship with Oh, so did he write The Queen, mm. did he? Uh, okay. He wrote The Audience first, I yes. think, and then it was yes. made from movies. Okay. So he's he's had a very successful career, yes. I think. He is fantastic to listen to. He's so clever and insightful. I just oh, 
So, yes, um, well, that's a keep listening to because I one. think you'll love it. Mm. Okay, so that's it from us for 2020. Mm. What a year this I has know. been. Oh, my oh. goodness. <laughs> I think across the world everybody is going to be happy to see the back of 2020 yeah. and we're just all going to try and move forward. So we're going to take a nice long summer break and we're going to catch up on all the books that we didn't quite get to during the year all the Netflix we haven't yet watched mm. and all the movies. <laughs> so we hope you'll catch up on any of our back episodes if you've missed some. And do please leave us a review and tell a friend about our podcast so that more book lovers can find us. Bye. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too, at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. It's, so, it's all quite horrible, <laughs> that sort of naive realisation. <laughs> He's too cute. Just leave him there. He wants but to he be, wants a biscuit. He wants to be part of the podcast. <laughs> Buzzy, do you want a biscuit? I actually want to take okay. a photo of you because that will just be the most sensational photograph. Okay. I wish you could see his tail wagging. Buzzy. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Yeah. That's <laughs> Oh, I want a gingerbread man. You give him a, I'm give him a little bit of the end of the yeah, tree. Yeah, give him, a, give him you... a bit of Christmas tree. There you go, darling. Oh, that's nice. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm surprised. Sugar oh. and butter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like. <laughs> You're not being a very good executive producer, Buster. Yeah, it has to yeah. be said.